Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, welcome to Listen for the Word this week. We are going to be discussing today Mark 9, 2 through 9. Um, This is all about the transfiguration. And interestingly, I uh, recently studied this with my college Bible study, and they were so excited about the transfiguration. And I thought that was really exciting. Um, I wasn't sure if they even knew what it was. So um, I hope you're as excited about it as they were. And uh, we're going to get started. And I'm going to start with some Bible questions for Alan. And um, really, I think the first thing we want to know is, why are we talking about the transfiguration today? It seems a little out of context. Yeah, we do kind of make a big jump. You know, we go from um, the summary of Jesus' ministry in Galilee in Mark chapter 1 all the way to Mark chapter 9 for the transfiguration. And, of course, I think part of the reason that the Revised Common Lectionary does this is to prepare us for the season of Lent, which is coming. Uh, But I think we see some of this already in just the way Mark structures his gospel. Because in Mark's gospel, the account of Jesus' transfiguration is reported almost at the outset. It's not the first episode, it's the second episode that um, he includes in the Passion narrative. And of course, we've observed before, half of Mark's gospel is devoted to the Passion narrative. And that, I think, indicates how important the cross is for Mark's story of Jesus. So we're in, in Mark's gospel, we're getting into that passion narrative, and it seems like there is a felt need for some kind of um, <laughs> reminder uh, that, hey, remember, we're talking about Jesus here. He's the one who, who brings the kingdom of God into our presence. One of the things that when I got to this passage and I went to my Bible and I saw my little title and we see it here starting with two, starting with the second verse um, and placing it, I think, into the context requires us maybe to go back a little bit further. Explain some of this to us. I think so. I think so. Um, Basically, the passion narrative begins with um, Jesus' prediction of his impending suffering and death and resurrection. And, um, and, and of course, Jesus follows that up with his call to the disciples to follow him in a path that's going to lead them to take up their own crosses and that, and that they'll have to lose their lives in order to find them. And so then we have this uh, statement in um, verse uh, 1 that some will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, if I remember correctly, I didn't check this out, but I think only only Mark says the kingdom of God has come with power. That's that's an interesting way of phrasing it, that the kingdom of God has come with power. And so it would seem that the transfiguration is important to set the stage for the telling of the extended story of Jesus' death by providing a, a foretaste, perhaps, of his resurrection, Um, and perhaps even a foretaste of the glory and the power of his parousia, his return. And we see that hinted at um, in 2 Peter 1, 16-18, where the author, most New Testament scholars don't think it's Peter, the apostle, describes the experience of the transfiguration as witnessing the power and parousia Mm -hmm. of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, the, you know, 
the glory, the power, the parousia, honor and glory, it's all wrapped up together, it's seeming, seemingly, in the minds of the New Testament authors like the author of Second Peter and, and, and Mark. One objection to this line of thinking that, that seeing the kingdom of God come with power equals the transfiguration is that, you know, he says some will not taste death before they see this. And, and what happens, you know, Mark says it happens six days later. Well, that's kind of a, you know, a very, very uh, solemn way to, to talk about something that's going to happen six days later. But really, given all the options, um, it refers most naturally, I think, to the transfiguration as another manifestation of the kingdom's presence in Jesus' ministry. And, and in fact, this statement, or something quite like it, precedes the transfiguration episode in all three synoptic gospels. And to me, that suggests that this is the way the gospel writers interpreted that statement of Jesus, that it was, it was referring to the transfiguration. I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking I'm, I'm reading Mark, maybe the first time, uh, maybe I'm a new, um, new to the gospel, and I'm thinking, I like Peter, I don't know who Jesus really is, and I'm still processing this in terms of this very human terms. Is that, does that, is that part of the reason why it's where it is? I mean, he does some, some early ministry before we see this. Is this part of to open our eyes to his divinity more, or maybe I'm. Well, I mean, in the, in, in, I think it's intended to to demonstrate Jesus' identity as the Son of God. It it, it doesn't have that effect on no, the disciples. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, and so I think it's really, I really do think it's more of, um, you know, Mark is preparing those who are going to be following his story of Jesus path to the cross mm-hmm. by okay. he's preparing them for that long story mm-hmm. by giving them this sort of glimpse uh, it's almost mm-hmm. like turning to the end of the story and seeing how it all turns out before you have to slog through all of the suffering and the pain so two confessions here so if i were coming to to scripture even as, as someone brought up in church very well informed i mean when you talk about those major events in our Gospels, yeah, you know, I, I'm good on, of course, um, I'm good on, on the death and the resurrection and the baptism. And while well, the birth isn't at all, of course, every, you know, everyone's familiar with the birth, even non-Christians. And then the transfiguration had seemed to slip by. Well, I mean, how many churches even observe Transfiguration right, Sunday, right? right? <laughs> I know. But when you think about that, this was important enough for our three synoptics to... Yep. Uh, Put it in there. Yes, indeed. And so uh, it's an interesting thing. We really shouldn't slip by it. I think no. the way that we, at least in my background, we slipped by it. There's a reason why Epiphany begins, the season of Epiphany in the Christian calendar begins with the baptism of the Lord and ends with Transfiguration mm-hmm. Sunday because they're connected. They're connected. So, yeah, yeah. yeah interesting. Um, so <laughs> I guess... What exactly is this transfiguration? <laughs> or maybe, as I asked, maybe what isn't the transfiguration? <laughs> yeah. I don't know that we can really fully explain the phenomenon of the transfiguration itself. Um, I think all we can say is, you know, apparently Jesus' appearance is altered. How that works, why that works, what's going on there, we don't, we don't really know that. Um, 
Um, Mark describes Jesus' altered appearance in terms of the fact that his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And so I would think the radiance of Jesus' garments again relates to some sense of divine glory. And again, it may present uh, a preview of Jesus' glory at his Parousia at his second coming. Mm-hmm. And again, we see that in, in Second Peter. We see it, I think, in Revelation chapter 1, where the risen Christ is, is depicted in terms that the Hebrew Bible reserves for Yahweh. So it's this, it's this idea of a preview or a foretaste of Jesus' um, divine glory. Um, uh, you know, how that takes place or what actually happens to him in terms of a physical transformation, I have no idea. I, and I wouldn't even want to try to speculate. <laughs> well, and of course, it's, this is going to become one of the issues for, for reformers that are trying to, still in the process of, of trying to define what, who Christ is, right? And, and especially when you've got a, a new round of heresies coming out and sure. saying, well, this is proof that, you know, he's mm-hmm. really not fully human. Well, this is proof that he becomes divine. So there's lots of pieces in here that talk about Christology later on for theology. So I don't think we're supposed to even ask this No, questions. I wouldn't say that the text has anything to do with any of that at all. <laughs> it's, it's really, it, you know, it, I think we need to read the text. As a biblical scholar, I would read it in, in terms of what is Mark trying to convey by this. And I would read it in terms of how does, how does this, this appearance, how does Jesus' dazzling white appearance play into biblical themes elsewhere? And the, and the closest re- resonance, I think, is the concept of glory in the Bible, mm-hmm. which, which uh, is sort of a synonym with God's presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, um, mm-hmm. when, when Jesus speaks about his coming as the Son of Man, he, he speaks about him coming with power and glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming on the clouds, uh, mm-hmm. which is a quotation from Daniel 7, mm-hmm. uh, as we've mentioned before. And so I, I really think that that's, that's part of the reason why the idea that this represents sort of a preview either of Jesus' resurrection or of his parousia or both um, seems to seems to make the most sense in mm-hmm. Mark's gospel. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, what happened to Jesus at this point. We're not we're not told what happened. Right, to Jesus. right, right. <laughs> I think. Well, and of course they are reading it with the idea that all these uh, all these misunderstandings of who Jesus is is that I mean they want to define that so badly sure. they're starting to they're doing what we learn we should never do their eisegesis right into this text trying to read right. things out of it. Um, okay, so we don't know. You know, we've tried to define a little bit about what's going on, but this is an interesting thing because also with Jesus is Elijah and Moses. Right. And this is a big piece of this that I think um, I think a lot of people want to slide by, and I think we should talk about it. What's going right. on there? So, and I think, you know, besides the fact that Jesus' appearance has changed, this is another significant aspect of what's going on here. What, whatever the transfiguration was meant to be or whatever happened, Moses and Elijah appeared to them and were talking with Jesus. Now, the word in the Greek is ophthe. It's the aorist passive form of the simple verb orao, to see. And it, could, it can refer to literal sight. It can be used, and it is used in both the Septuagint and in the Greek New Testament for the sight of a vision. Okay. Uh, That's a big deal. That's a big question mark as I've been reading. (laughs) And was this a vision? Was this something that they literally saw? I mean, later in this passage, the references seem to be regarding literal sight. You know, they didn't see 
Moses and Elijah anymore. You know, they saw Jesus only. I, I think I think when we're dealing with what's going on with Jesus and Moses and Elijah, we're we're sort of in a, a kind of a boundary zone <laughs> between what we might call literal sight and what we might call a visionary experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would interpret it that oh, way. Yeah. We Presbyterians tend to be so intellectual. Sometimes we don't think about, we, we want to explain away everything mm-hmm. in this rationalization. But I think a lot of people, if you've ever had a, one of these experiences, these it's like a dream, but it's more real than a dream. Mm-hmm. It's more, sure. it might be something like that. Sure, um, I would agree. Uh, but is that, so few people have had that or can will buy into that experience. Or, or want to actually oh. talk about it out loud. Ex- exactly, <laughs> that, that, then, that then they don't quite understand this but if you've had that experience this makes more sense it does it does indeed yeah. <laughs> yeah now you know moses and elijah are obviously they represent high points in the biblical narrative um moses is the original prophet right he's the one with whom god speaks face to face exactly mm-hmm. right elijah also represents a high point in, in, in biblical prophecy. And it's important to note that with Moses, there are miracles at, you know, yep. the parting yeah. of the Red Sea and the, and the yeah. plagues that come on Egypt and the manna and, and yeah. striking the water from the rock, you know, and things like this. With Elijah, there are miracles. Yes, there are. Mm-hmm. With Jesus, mm-hmm. there are miracles. That's right. And there are some people who think that the miraculous element in Scripture seems to occur in the Bible at these high points, at these transitional Uh, points. uh And so I think we're meant to understand that Moses is sort of the original prophet. Elijah comes along in sort of the spirit of of Moses, and so does Jesus. And and this is important because when, when Moses and the people were at Mount Sinai, Apparently, they not only saw something, they also heard perhaps the voice or they heard the sound of trumpets coming from the cloud, and they were scared Mm -hmm. by this, naturally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so they begged Moses, you go and speak to God for us. You go up on the mountain. You go up into that cloud thing, looking thing that we don't know what's going on there, right? right? And you speak to God and then bring bring it down to us. And and we don't want God to speak to us because we're terrified. Right. So as a result of that, God tells Moses, okay, I'm going to send a prophet like you among them. And, 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 and so when, when Moses tells them this in Deuteronomy, you know, he says, the Lord will send a prophet like me, and this prophet is someone you should heed, whose mm-hmm. word you should heed. And so this prophet like Moses, who's going to come and bring God's words to the people, uh, I think we see resonances of that in both Elijah and in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And and so there is this kind of progression of prophecy, so to speak. Mm-hmm, Moses mm-hmm. Is, is the original prophet. Elijah is a prophet like Moses, but Jesus is the final right. prophet like Moses. Now, at, at this point, I, I think that's probably the most important significance I would see in Moses and Elijah. Mm-hmm. There are some other possibilities. You know, both Moses and Elijah are said to have spoken with God on Mount right, Sinai. Right, right. Uh, both, both have some reluctance at times to do what God wants them yes, to do. Indeed. So, you yes, know, um, yes, uh, I think that'd be another comparison. And while we maybe don't get that as much with Jesus, we still get that, um, or God have mercy on me, and, and, and kind right. of that sense of... It, 
I know this is my time, but I don't want to do right. this sense. Exactly. So I exactly. think we even see it with Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think I think primarily what we're looking at is sort of the 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 continuity of prophecy um, depicted graphically, you know, with mm-hmm. Moses, Elijah, yeah. and Jesus. Yeah. Well and And I, prophecy as as the proclamation of God's message, not the prediction and of the future. And I think that's uh, that's really good, you know, and there, there has been, and we could talk about this more in a historical sec- section, but some assumptions about Moses and Elijah made from the early fathers even, you know, that Elijah represents the prophets of Moses, the law. And I think if you read that, it comes out really dry. I mean, if you're like, really? It's, it comes off like a um, some kind of early prescription. That's how I read it. And I was kind of like, well, I think that's an assumption that we jump into with that. And I, I think it's deeper than that. I think it's a deeper space than that. I think that's a kind of a cop-out. Uh, sorry, to origin. And <laughs> well, and, and part of it, I think, you know, in, in those early days, one of, the, one of the points of their apologetic, one of the points that they had to defend was that the New Testament was Scripture. Yes, yes, and yes. And so I think, I think you know... Um, we will. I mean, I'll go ahead and mention it now. But the fact that that Moses and Elijah disappear, and the voice from the cloud says, "This is my beloved right. son. Hear him. Listen to him," sort of implies that that Jesus kind right. of t- supersedes them. Right, right. And so, you know, in that kind of a setting where the early church is trying to defend their use of a New Testament, you know, this would be sort of an, this would lend itself to that apologetic. Well, Moses is the prophet of the law, that's and right. Elijah's that's the prophet, right. and Jesus supersedes them both. Right, right. And I don't think that's the idea. I think the idea is more that Jesus is in the same line of succession mm-hmm. with, with Moses and, and Elijah, mm-hmm. but he is the highest fulfillment right, of that prophet right. that, that speaks God's God's right. word to the people. All right. So more pieces to this. Put that aside because <laughs> now we've got to figure out what's going on with, with Peter. Because <laughs> uh, Peter is really looking kind of a, a bit buffoonish again. I should, it should be nicer, but really, I mean, oh, can we build these tabernacles or can we build these tents here? I mean, he just seems, still seems clueless. I, I think, you know, Mark says, Mark says it in, in verse 6, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Right. I think if you put, our, you put yourself in that position, and all of a sudden you have this kind of amazing right. vision, experience, kind of whatever it is thing happen to you, you're going to be kind of freaked out. Yeah. And so, you know, and here's the thing, is that, you know, building a tabernacle like that, it's the same, it's a cognate noun for the verb that Jesus dwelled among us, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, in his incarnate form. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's the same word for the tent of meeting mm-hmm. in the in the Hebrew Bible, the tabernacle. And so it seems that that Peter probably thought, oh, we have this, we have the presence of these these lofty figures. You know, he would have seen Moses and Elijah as being the great heroes of the faith. Now, how he would have recognized that Moses was Moses and Elijah was Elijah, that's, who knows, that's right? That's one of the big question marks is, okay, they've never seen him right. before, but they know who they are. They didn't have, it's not like they had a, you know, a 3D, you know, picture of Moses and Elijah in the temple, right? So, so somehow they're able to recognize that it's Elijah and Moses. And and the tents, you know, were, were sort of an act of worship. But not only was it inappropriate for them for him to build tabernacles for Moses and Elijah, Peter also seems to just totally miss the fact that he is he is 
seeing Jesus' identity revealed before his eyes, and he just doesn't get it. And so, again, I mean, I think part of what's going on is he just, he, he was so overwhelmed by this experience. He didn't know what to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on that note, um, okay, we got Peter, but why are, you know, why are James and John, the other two fellows that yeah. are along? Well, most New Testament scholars recognize that there was an inner circle in the, in the 12 apostles and that Peter, James, and John were that inner circle. Now, if you think about it, the four original disciples are Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Mm-hmm. Whatever happened to Andrew in the midst of that process, I don't know. But um, you do have this sense in, mm-hmm. um, in several places in the gospel where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him mm-hmm. in, these, in these settings. All right. There's more pieces we need to put together because we have this cloud. So let's talk about the cloud. You know, what makes this a transfiguration? Well, first of all, Jesus' appearance has changed. Secondly, Moses and Elijah appear. Thirdly, we have this cloud and the voice from the cloud. Now, for someone who's never read the Bible... You know, the idea of a voice coming from a cloud might sound like these folks are tripping. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, but if you have a biblical grounding, you know that the cloud in the Bible represents the cloud of God's glory, which is basically how God's presence is, is manifested in, in a physical way. That's the only way in which God's glory, God's presence is manifested in a physical way. You know, in the in the wilderness wanderings, there's a pillar of cloud by night by day and right. a pillar of fire by, by night. night. But the idea is that this is the only only physical uh, manifestation of God's presence that's mentioned in the Bible. You know, for example, in Exodus um, 24, uh, the Septuagint refers to uh, that God was speaking from the cloud that had settled on Mount Sinai. Um, which I think is a very direct uh, illusion here that you've got the voice, a divine voice coming from the cloud. Uh, you also have the pillar of cloud in, it's mentioned many times uh, in Exodus and, New, and in, in Numbers, um, and it's identified, specifically it's identified with the glory of the Lord, or the, mm-hmm. which is another way, it's sort of shorthand in the Bible for God's very presence. Um, and then the cloud was was the representation of God's presence in the Holy of Holies. The cloud mm-hmm, was said right. to reside uh, between the angels on the mercy seat in the temple. Mm-hmm. And so you have that as well in Leviticus and First Kings and Second Chronicles. And so the idea is that this cloud is identified in the Bible with God's presence. And so the idea is that God God is present in this cloud, and God is the one who is speaking from this cloud. And it is from this that that God identifies Jesus as my beloved son. Right. right. Yeah, which we just saw, which we just saw with the baptism. Right. Mm-hmm. Except yeah, this is the second time that a voice speaks regarding Jesus mm-hmm. identity, mm-hmm. but the first time in the baptism uh, very likely the voice, as we saw earlier, was addressed to Jesus himself. And so this was something, yes. you are my beloved right, son. With you, I am well pleased, right? Mm-hmm. Here, however, the voice is clearly directed to Peter, James, and John. Uh-huh. And so it's it's important because in the context of Mark's gospel, this is the the probably the, the one and only time that Jesus is identified to the disciples mm-hmm. so clearly 
as the Son of God. And we mentioned before with regard to Mark, you know, this theme of Jesus as the Son of God is very important. You know, it starts off the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel Mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mm -hmm. But what we find is that every reader of the math of the gospel of Mark knows this from the start and no, none of the human characters in the story recognize Jesus as the son of God until the Roman centurion does at the cross. Yeah. So the idea in Mark's gospel then is that, that you have to see Jesus through the eyes of the cross to be able to truly understand what it is that he is the son of God. But this is the one time in in the the whole gospel narrative in Mark's gospel, mm-hmm. where Jesus is so clearly identified as the Son of God, and and not only does the voice say, "This is my beloved Son," but the voice says to them, "Hear him," that they are to hear him and his words. And I think again that refers back to the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. Uh, De- Moses says, "You know, the Lord will send a prophet like me." To, to speak all of his commands to you, and you shall heed such a prophet. So there's a command to hear the prophet like right, Moses in, right. in the original text. As we're talking here, I, and, and you can correct me here, but I keep thinking of Paul talking about the foolishness of the cross, and I keep thinking mm. about just how, even though they've seen this, that they can't wrap their brain around it, how it, it still doesn't, who Jesus is, and that will be, of course, revealed even again with the resurrection, it still isn't sinking in. Peter's still going to deny him three times, and there's still this really human stuff that comes in, even though they've now been fully aware, told about who Jesus is. Well, and I think we have to understand that Peter and James and John, they were were people who had been schooled in the Jewish faith of Mm -hmm. that day. Mm -hmm. But I think... What we see in, in the Judaism of Jesus' day is there just really was no framework for this kind of understanding, yeah. not widespread. There were some hints. There, mm-hmm. were, some, there were some aspects of Judaism, especially um, outside of, of the temple in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. There, there are some texts um, that were not really central to Judaism, the Judaism of Jesus' mm-hmm. day, that do mm-hmm. seem to point towards um, a divine figure like the Son of God, but the main thrust of the of the faith of the Jewish people in in this day would not have had really any framework for them to be able to pro- to process this. And I think we see that as well with Jesus when they come down from the mountain. He mm-hmm. says, yeah. "You know, don't tell anybody don't until tell after the Son of Man has been raised from the right, dead." Right. Well, uh, not only were they just kind of blown away by the whole experience. But, you know, uh, Mark 9.10 adds that they kept it to themselves because they didn't understand what being raised from the dead meant. And I think there's two, it's twofold there. They don't, they're, they're, still, they're yeah. thinking this is maybe the Messiah. So they're thinking this, you know, the Messiah can't die on us. And, and the other thing is there's really not a space in the Jewish faith of that day for any kind of concept right. of resurrection. Right. That's not part of their faith. Well, you know, and again, as you're talking, I keep thinking, well, gosh, and especially as Mark is telling this story at this point, and as humans are, are walking through this, you know, with, with Mark, as we're, as we're walking through the story until the end. And we're not to the end, but it gives yeah. us this hint. And I think at this point, we're not supposed to draw that conclusion yet. We're, yeah. we're into, we're, we're walking through it. Well, just like, just like Peter, we're not, 
we're not ready to understand what yeah. it means yet yeah. because we haven't witnessed the cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, I will say this. You know, the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection, but they believed in a resurrection of the dead ultimately. Right, They right. didn't believe that someone was going to be raised from the dead in their lifetime. Right, right. <laughs> Nobody believed in that in Judaism of that day. Right, right. <laughs> so it just this was there was just no space for them to really even conceive of what Jesus was saying to them. I mean, he might as well have been speaking a foreign language to them. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's right. I think that's yeah. right. Um, and then uh, finally, I think the last question I have is, um, I, I think you've already st- stated this, but and, and this emphasis of. Um, transfiguration to resurrection. In other words, I think you need one to have the other. I don't think the resurrection would fully make sense without the transfiguration. Maybe I'm wrong without the transfiguration. I mean, it's it's part it's part important at the maybe. story. Yeah, maybe yeah. so. I've, I've never thought of it that way, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I, I think I think looking at Mark's gospel clearly, he's interested to show how presence of the kingdom is manifested in Jesus' ministry, and that this is, this is a very important example of how the kingdom of God is manifested in Jesus' ministry. Yeah, you know, it does seem that Jesus' physical appearance of uh, being trans, transformed into this, into this um, sort of where he reflects this radiance or this glory of God mm-hmm. may reflect uh, his resurrected state, Mm-hmm. And so it may point forward to the resurrection. Um, I mean, I think in a whether it's whichever one it is, whether it's the kingdom's presence or whether it's a foretaste of the resurrection, I, I think the reason why it occurs here is because Mark and the other synoptic gospel writers are launching their their, their story of how Jesus is going to die, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think it's sort of it almost softens the blow. It almost gives people yeah, sort yeah. of a preparation to be able to handle the fact that this amazing man right. is going That's to be true. brutally executed and die. Yeah, and and so it, it gives them a, a way, a, a framework within which to kind of handle that story. And, and I think the same thing is true for us in terms of the church calendar. You know, we're going to start the long yep, trek that's right. of Lent and as we go, you know, six weeks until Easter, 40 days of uh, the 40 days of Lent. You know, that can be kind of heavy. And right. I think the idea is that, that tra- Transfiguration Sunday then is meant to encourage us all before taking that long yeah, journey with yeah, Jesus to yeah, the cross. I agree. I, I agree. That's... Um a beautiful way also to, to uh, process it as you are, as, as you're talking about it with your congregations. Awesome. Thanks, Alan. Thank we'll you. be back. Okay. We're back for segment two, and I'm going to just start off by asking Christy, how did the reformers read this passage about the transfiguration? So one thing about the transfiguration is just some of the assumptions of some of the issues that are really present um, in the minds of our reformers. So we're dealing again with the Roman Catholic Church. We're dealing again with the nature of Christ, which comes up again. Remember, once the Reformation hits, we begin to have question marks about um, Christ's identity. So that's another piece with it. There's also, again, that connection between, if you will, Hebrew Scripture and New Testament. Um, more issues that they regularly deal with. So I wouldn't say there's anything 
a completely um, new and, and, and fantastic, but rather um, that they are asking and placing in the same kinds of views that they do when they look at other points of scripture. What I do think is important for us is some of these things have become assumed in the tradition. Um, and I think that's important for us to be aware of. For example, um, we talked about this a little bit, but there's some assumption that this idea that Elijah represented the prophets and, and Moses represented the law, that's assumed um, taking from the church fathers comes through. And, and, and depending on, if you're really looking at a casual modern day um, modern day interpretation, you'll see that sometimes. So you have to be careful. You have to have your eyes open. If, you, if you're just looking at your, like your, the text in your Bible, depending on who does it, I've seen that in there. So just be aware that some of that stuff has really kind of just come through the tradition without kind of that step back to reinterpret. You're talking about the footnotes in the study Bible. Exactly, yeah. the footnotes yeah. in the study Bible. Exactly, which, as you well know, um, especially our, our congregants tend to take that as, as almost as true as the Bible itself. And, and <laughs> we have to be really careful. But, but anyway, so some of the pieces here. Um, so... Let's talk about a little bit this nature of Christ that comes in there. There's a question mark as if the transfiguration somehow questions who Christ is. Does this mean that Christ is fully divine, fully human as we understand? Or does this suggest that Christ becomes divine or is more divine than human? Or is this, is this a pattern in the development? And so, so that sounds like they, they want to get into what really happened with the transfiguration. Yeah, that, that's one of the big question marks. Um, and uh, I guess maybe what really happened to Jesus? What really happened to Jesus? What is going on here? And, and they want to make sure that they're true, um, especially our, our magisterial reformers, they want to make sure that they're, they're true to um, the creeds, the Nicene Creed. However, they still are questioning this because they want to make sure they understand it well. So, and and this relates also, I think, ultimately to what happens in the in the Lord's Supper, right? As we're talking about, can Christ really be present mm, wow. in the in the Lord's Supper at the same time? Can the ubiquity of Christ? So, this is why mm. this is a big deal. Um, and so, Melanchthon in particular starts to ask, you know, hey, in this transfiguration, it doesn't change the substance of his body, but as he says, rather a transmutation of his human condition and fragility where his humanity remained the same. That sounds a lot to me like a Lutheran understanding sure. of what happens in the Lord's Supper sure. um, um, in through and under um, as that's taking place. So the, it's, the, the elements remain the same, but but their the, their condition is, is changed. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I think that's one of the at least one of the pieces of discussion. Wow. Mm -hmm. Again, that theology that becomes a piece. Well, but it's kind of fascinating to me that they used their understanding of Christ's presence in the sacrament to try to figure out what happened to Jesus at the transfiguration. Or, or vice versa, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? I mean, that this is a point, but you know, that's one of the big questions. Um, you know, how is Christ present um, there? How mm -hmm. is Christ present in a transfiguration? And um, so that's, again, one of those Reformation big deals that, that comes an issue here. And I think we underestimate um, how important the the Lord's Supper was and this nature of what where Christ is in the um, in the Lord's Supper. And today we kind of go, really, that was a big deal. But that is... 
Well, that was the make or break thing. That's I mean, the make that's or what break div- thing. That's what divided the different uh, branches of the Protestant Reformation Absolutely. from one another was their understanding of the sacrament of, of communion. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was huge. It was, and yeah. There were efforts by folks like Martin Bucer and Melanchthon to some extent to come to some agreements, but other folks were refusing to budge, um, including your Zwinglians on the one hand and your Roman Catholics on the other, and you simply could not come back together. And um, again, in our modern context, we kind of look like, really, this this is it. Um, and so this actually, in some ways, is a kind of a big deal as well, because it's, it's asking some of those same questions. Surely, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. surely. So um, what did the Reformers make out of the fact that Elijah and Moses appeared to the disciples, <laughs> Jesus. There was, you know, they had this big question mark whether they were actually there or not. <laughs> and they're having the same problem with the Greek that Alan talked about. Uh, that that has maybe dual meaning and a little bit, and so it's not as clear as they want it to be. And you know, I find it interesting because they weren't they weren't ready to deny that God could simply resurrect them temporarily. I mean, it was really not a big problem because God uh. can do whatever God does. And I, I took me by surprise. Yeah. I thought they would, I thought they would look at it more as, is a vision kind of thing, but, um, so are you resurrected and then sent back to I think so. wherever? I think so. <laughs> I was kind of, I was kind of surprised that that discussion went on that way. Um, it, it, it was, uh, you know, Martin Bootser, a sense that God could actually resurrect, resurrect them for this event mm. um wow. and and of course the question of how the po- apostles recognize them and calvin's gonna tell us well you know maybe they had little hints that told them who they were maybe little <laughs> 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 maybe maybe little um talismans or <laughs> i don't know so anyway uh name plates <laughs> name plates yeah i don't i i don't know so it, kind of an interesting question mark there. Um, but And I, I mentioned this earlier that kind of a, some a, assumed um, a prophet and law um, um, designation for them both. That was kind of accepted. That was talked about a lot. Yeah. So they were kind of on the same page that Jesus supersedes the law and the prophets. Yeah. 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 You know, you had asked me why do we have Peter, James, and John here at this scene, uh, what do the reformers have to say about that? Yeah, they some of them really pushed, <laughs> trying to figure out. Well, Peter is one thing, and we could talk about Peter all by himself. So let's talk about James and John first. So you know why James and John? And so what, a few of them are coming up with this idea. Well, James was the first martyr, so that's why he was there because he was that important. And and yeah, that really doesn't follow. But that is that some were trying to. Some turned trying to make it a historical thing, but then they couldn't figure out how John was there. I mean, uh. it's like, well, maybe because John was a virgin. That's what they said. <laughs> but now we laugh. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> but when you're thinking about the context of the church, yeah. especially the Roman Catholic Church, which is denying the body and yes. elevating yourself, then all of a sudden you have these disciples that are 
elevated because they're above their bodily functions. They've, right. they, they're more spirit. James gives up his life. John gives up his sexuality. Exactly. Yeah. And so that they are above. And, of course, the problem here is that starts to allow you to have these kind of hierarchies within the human mm. condition. And those who can elevate themselves above them, ba- their base self, they are, if you will, more worthy. They're more mm-hmm. holy. So then you get your whole, your whole monastic movement. You get um, your elevation of priests. And so this is one of the things that um, some of the reformers are trying to combat, saying, uh, hey, no, um, we want to make sure that this is about Christ. This isn't about these other people. Now, let's talk about Peter. I don't want to leave Peter out because who is Peter to us? Petrus, um, the rock on which I build this church. Peter's the first pope. Right. Big deal. So he is the most important. And this is, Peter is there and Peter's role there helps cement that important role in the church. It makes him more important again, that hierarchy again. And it's again, another, uh, another um, explanation by the Roman Catholic church. Why again, this, the series of popes and can be in charge of the church. So it, it fits because that Because Peter was present. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, the, that um, line of thinking actually begins with second Peter. Second Peter chapter one is is kind of a defense of Peter's apostolicity, mm-hmm. so to speak, mm-hmm. and the fact that he witnessed the transfiguration is one of mm-hmm. the arguments in that defense of his mm-hmm. apostolicity. So that makes sense mm-hmm. that that the Roman Catholic Church would seize upon it in there. Of course, we, we when we say that Peter was the first pope, we recognize this was according to Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, right. Not necessarily according to biblical tradition. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. But you, exactly. you do have that. You do have that. Um, you know, it seems that in Second Peter, Peter was under fire, and so he, you know, whoever is writing Second Peter is defending Peter's apostolicity, mm-hmm. and he uses mm-hmm. the transfiguration exactly. to support that. That's interesting. Exactly. So yeah. then, that's when you're seeing, you know, Calvin coming out saying Christ is first. This is this is about mm. this is about um, God saying. I, this is who this is, and identifying him to those to those disciples. I think that's a really important piece there, and saying, you know, this doesn't make you better. This just makes you aware. Yes. Yeah. I noticed uh, that you have something here about the transfiguration and prayer. Mm-hmm. What what did what did the reformers yeah, have to say this about was that? The kind, they were making um, an argument that the transfiguration happened during prayer. Really? So they were using this to elevate the role of prayer in your spiritual life and in your understanding of, um, of, of what your call is on your life. So there's an interesting thing here. I think whereas we might look, or one could look at the transfiguration as something that happened to those disciples there, that this is something that happened for all of us mm. and that the story's been told to all of us and therefore it happened during prayer. It's kind of an invitation for us to be involved with prayer mm. as you're not going to make sense of this outside of prayer, which I think is really interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, and that really um, the, the, the questioning that goes on when you look at it, that's because you're, you're not in the right, you're not in the right mental state, not in the right place. Huh. I thought that was really interesting. That's interesting yeah. yeah, but again, you have <laughs> you're dealing with a, a population of people that ha- <laughs> their re- religiosity has been kind of um, <laughs> outside of really the church. 
their mm-hmm. prayer practices are left to, if you will, those who pray. Mm-hmm. There have been that tradition, right? There's those who work, those who um, those who work, those who um, pray, those who fight, and so the average person is not really in tune with scripture, isn't really in tune with spiritual disciplines. Uh, So this is a a shift back to say, look, you know, we are all called, this is the um, um, priesthood of all believers, and it's your responsibility to be involved in spiritual disciplines, including prayer. And that's how you're going to connect yourself. So so do they imply that perhaps a person can have their own sort of experience of the transfigured Christ in prayer? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So, um, how then? How then do the reformers see this experience and as being? I mean, obviously, that kind of prayer experience would be something that would be beneficial. But how else do they see this as 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 something that is helpful to the Christian? Well, okay. So, there's this idea. One of the things is that this is the kind of the highest state of being with God. So, the kind of looking at this is one of the mountaintop experiences um, that Jesus presents. And I think one of the pieces is um, that people are afraid of death. And this is like a, a reminder that there's hope beyond. Mm. Um, so it's because really Elijah because Elijah and of Moses a, had died. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. So this is a hope beyond for everybody. This isn't just for, um, just for the people out there. Special holy men mm-hmm. like Moses and Elijah. And so for you, this is that, yeah, this is that breath of, of uh, as you are engaged in prayer as well, this is a mountaintop experience for you as well. Mm. Didn't really make a big deal about the mountain as a whole. I mean, that that's just where these big things sometimes happen, mm. though. Um, yeah. Well, and that's a biblical thing, you know, that people exactly. go up on the mountain and they meet God. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They haven't been out to Western Nebraska yet. You'll meet God there too. <laughs> right. They're, they're, or, or the or the coastal plains of South Texas, you know, that are flat as a board, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Hopefully you can meet God anywhere. Yeah. One other little piece um, is that they are using this to uh, emphasize the Trinity in it, which is kind of interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. The Luther in particular is like, oh, this is the, this is the Trinity. You well, know, you the got f- the Father and the Son. Father and the, and the cloud is the Holy Spirit. Oh, really? Yes. Huh. It's just clear as day. And uh, I, I thought that was interesting because it, it, he, he almost says it's as clear as sa- sa- the Bible saying, you know, this Father, Son, Holy Spirit right there. I mean, he sees really? that as real support for, for Trinitarian language. So, mm. um, yeah, and I, apparently that re- reflects back to the church fathers. Um, Origen had really? also, also come up with that idea. So um, that has been through it. It doesn't seem to be a big question mark, but yet, again, in the Reformation, you get that kind of resurgence of questioning of the Trinity. So, um, the, yeah, well, that it, again. it would make sense, you know, especially in the early church context, because their mm-hmm. their understanding of Trinity was definitely challenged mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from very diff- various mm-hmm. different uh, angles. Mm-hmm. And you know, for them to to try to find Trinity wherever they could as a means of of defending. The belief in the Trinity that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess you're, you're saying what I hear you saying is that that there was some some challenge of the Trinity yep. in the Reformation. I mean, era once as well. once people are allowed to, you know, read Scripture for themselves, ah. you start to get people interpreting all kinds of things for themselves, and so traditional doctrine for some folks goes out the window. And that's, mm-hmm. the, you know, we we call them the radicals, but the radicals were considered to be very 
very dangerous. Um, then German usually references the Schwärmer. There was always emphases by reformers to emphasize um, the creeds and the, the truth of the creeds within the context of their interpretations. Mm, it was just yeah. central. Because I think in part they realized that as these people were going crazy with bizarre interpretations of the Bible, how dangerous that was to um, not only the church but to the social order. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was kind of a big deal. So we do see that quite a bit, this kind of thing. Well, and yeah, it makes sense that they would they would stress the truth of the creeds over against sort of the, the emotional excesses of the Schwermer. I mean, Schwermerai is kind of a it's kind of has an emotional uh, character to it in German, and yes, so yes, yes. you know it's almost as if they're ca- being carried away by their own personal yeah. experience and their own personal feelings into um, places that they ought not go. Exactly. So. There's a lot of, in the hymn in the hymn tradition. There's a lot of polemical hymnody out there. Really? Oh yeah, it's, it's kind of <laughs> wild. But in that polemical hymnody, um, well, and I would say even in some of the more mainline ones, but stream stuff. But the people that are great danger are the Turks. There's uh, no surprise that the Turks, yeah, the Roman Catholics. And the Schwärmer. The Schwärmer really? always brought up as being particularly wow. Even dangerous. in their hymns. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh totally wow. in the hymns. That's amazing. <laughs> Very fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's get together and sing a song to God about all the people we're going to avoid. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So, and I think it's interesting, too, because the Turks, which represented the Muslims in many ways, but yet they tended to use the Turks, which I thought was interesting. Um, so there's this association of not not only were they Muslim, but the, there's this kind of uh, political sense about them and, and even right. a racial sense about them. Well, yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was a, a viable threat in the Middle Ages from the Ottoman Empire exactly. taking over Europe. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so that was a big threat. I mean, that was, but the political piece of that is interesting. Yeah, how that yeah. fits in there, so... Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Christy. You're welcome. Well, we're back to wrap things up. And um, as I mentioned uh, earlier in the first segment, it seems that in Mark's context, the importance of the transfiguration is that it represents another way in which Jesus demonstrates the presence of the kingdom of God in his ministry. And yet, one of the things that I find interesting is that, for the most part, the way Jesus demonstrated the kingdom of God was somewhat understated and easily overlooked. And as a matter of fact, many people in Jesus' day did just that. They missed the whole point, <laughs> and they totally overlooked him mm-hmm. and, and as as bringing the kingdom. And, you know, as I think about that, I think it's still very easy for us to overlook the presence of the kingdom in our midst today. And so I wonder, how do we cultivate a sense of what God is doing um, in this time of violence that's still ongoing and turmoil and uncertainty? I mean, I think this is part of our our, our constant challenge. Um, and as I was thinking about our churches, and I was thinking about how many people see the churches a little better than a club, or their activity is is something they should do because that's what good people do. I sometimes visualize um, kind of a diagram where 
the person's at the center, right? This is a modern diagram. And so they've got their, you know, their football game over here, maybe their season tickets in one circle. And they've got maybe in another circle above their gym, gym and their gym membership and the same size circle on their faith. And so their world is revolving around. No, around here, I think I would say that the season tickets are, are bigger than they their might. Faith. Be, they might. Be, they're probably bigger than the faith. <laughs> they're passed right? down from generation right. to generation, right? Right. But my point is that you know our worldview tends to kind of push this off into the side. And I'm thinking, what happens if if our faith becomes that center circle mm. and shapes who we are fundamentally? I think that's part of the problem. Is that in our tradition today, we tend to see it church as an activity instead of as an identity. And mm-hmm. um, I think when you come to embrace transfiguration, you realize, and and the, the bulk of our faith entirety, you be, realize that it becomes an identity. And when I was thinking about my college students, now these are, these are special college students. I want to put that out. These are, they probably all go to seminary. But what's really fun is they were like, oh, we are so excited to get to the transfiguration. I love the transfiguration. And, and I think for them, because this is like where they, where they are seeing God and Jesus and it's all revealed to them. And, mm. and I just found that so refreshing because in my tradition, it had been kind of jumped over. And sure. here they were because there's something of it for them in this particular scripture of an affirmation of who they are. Which I I think is interesting, but I think it also corresponds to some of the ways that the reformers saw saw that presence. You know, God's revealing who Jesus is to us, and um, that's kind of cool. Well, it's very yeah. cool. I think, yeah, mm-hmm. very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, as I, as I think about it, there's a there's a passage in the Lord of the Rings where um, Gandalf says something to the effect of, you know, a lot of people think that it takes great power to overcome great evil. And he said that in his experience, he's found that it, it's, not, it's not that way at all, but rather it is through the common, ordinary acts of goodness that, mm-hmm. that, that evil is overcome. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think we almost um, exalt the kingdom of God too highly, so much yes. so that it, it no longer becomes part of our real life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would much rather see signs of the kingdom of God in things like someone has wounded you or betrayed you or done you wrong and you respond in love, you know? Exactly, exactly. I would like to see the kingdom of God where someone has, is, is at, the, at the end of their rope mm-hmm. and, and you respond in a way that that renews their faith and gives them hope, that that renewed faith and hope is in of itself a sign of the presence of God and God's kingdom in that person's life. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. someone is is terrified by a diagnosis Mm -hmm. or by something that is impending, and, you know, you come person comes alongside them and and yeah. holds their hand or 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 gives them a hug mm-hmm. or just mm-hmm. says the words that that help that fear to to kind of subside and help them to trust that God mm-hmm. is going to be faithful to them you know and yeah 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 we, we kind of, and we kind of see those things as just sort of run of the mill ordinary that's right. what we would call it right. ordinary but i don't know that love 
and hope and faith and trust are so ordinary. I mean, what's ordinary is is anger and fear and those kinds of things. Those are very ordinary. There's That's a, part of our normal mm-hmm. human experience, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. Well, on, I was thinking on top of on top, top of that is when we are we are thankful for the now. We're thankful for those every little thing. And so often, how much do we need more? We want more. We have to. And we, we we're in such a hurry and. Instead, we sort of stopping and just kind of being thankful for our presence and kind of sitting into mm. where we are now um, is another piece of that. Sure. Um, yeah, I agree. Though I think how we do that, I think it. I think everything around us cha- challenges that, right? Yeah, it's it's the message of Madison Avenue. It's the message of the halls of power. Mm-hmm. You know that that you have to be this very important person in order to have power, in order to really make a difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I understand that to some extent, and I see how that works its way out in our world. But at the same time, uh, my faith that God is at work, I guess it makes me look beyond the obvious. You know, yeah. the obvious yeah. you know, spheres of power in our world are, are, are not in those areas of faith and hope and love you know the obvious centers of power are are elsewhere, mm-hmm. and and yet you know we have this we have this thing from the study catechism. I use the study catechism with my confirmands a lot, and um, there's a part that talks about God's love. God is a God of love, and that that love is powerful beyond measure. Mm-hmm. And and you know that that God's love is so strong that it is willing to. Uh, take on suffering for our sakes, yet it's also so strong that nothing can prevail against it. And I guess in some circles we could see love as something powerful, you know, especially in the family. But when it comes to world affairs or these kinds of things, you know, how often do we see love as being powerful? I mean, it seems more like a weakness. Yeah, almost. I think we think of it as a, as a weakness instead of powerful, but yeah. But that's where God's power is manifest. Exactly. Is in the exactly. law that is willing to go to the cross and, and, and to go through the cross and to demonstrate yeah. that the kingdom is transforming things already by, by raising Jesus from the dead. That is, that's the whole point of the resurrection yeah. is that God is already in the process of transforming all things to make all things new. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I hope that we can. I hope that was as we look at the transfiguration this week, we can, we can be looking for signs of the presence and yeah. find ways to help our people to be looking for signs yes, of God's presence. Absolutely, and 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 make this text as a life for them as it is for my college students, and as I think it, you heard that it is um, once you really dig into it. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.